following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. So open your Bibles, if you would, to Galatians now, chapter 4. And if you're new with us, we're just working our way verse by verse through this particular letter. And I wanted to start by asking you a question. How many of you in the room are under 24? Can I see your hands? Under 24. There they are. How many are under 18? Under 18? Okay, put them up way high. How many are under 13? Put them up way... Oh, look at that. There's under 13. Great. Have you noticed that as a culture, we don't have a distinct moment, a distinct time, a date, when all of a sudden you transition from being a child to being an adult. That's just not part of our culture. Uh, it's kind of nebulous. Uh, we even have you know, young men who want to be Peter Pan. They sing the song, I never want to grow up, and they, they never seem to become an adult. And as we look at our culture, there are basically some indicators of adulthood, which would be you take responsibility for yourself, and you take responsibility for others, and people consider you an adult. And some people never get there, right? They're never responsible. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is not to blast our culture, but to help you to understand that you and our culture can't really understand, just because of our culture, the passage we're going to look at today. Because in the other cultures that were a part of the first century, the Jewish, Roman, and Greek cultures, they had a definitive moment when one day, are you ready, you're a child, and the next day, you're an adult. It was totally different than our culture. And that's why I've got to explain it to you so you understand what's going behind this particular passage of Scripture. So in the, in the Jewish culture, once you turn 12 you would then go to your, you know, Sabbath gathering at the synagogue and you would pray a prayer of maturity and accepting the responsibilities of adulthood. And then you would go home and they'd have a giant bar mitzvah party and no joke, at that point, that 12-year-old was considered an adult and had all the rights and responsibilities of an adult. That was the Jewish culture for century. If you were a part of the Greek culture in the first century what would happen is that somewhere around 18, you would then become a ward of the city-state. So in the Greek culture, you would then become, and a lot of them like Sparta, you'd become a soldier, all right? But you would be a part of the citizens' and you'd get your hair cut, and then after your two years of service at age 20, you would be considered an adult. And everybody knew that. Interesting enough, in the Greek, that was the Greek culture, in the Roman culture, somewhere between 13 and 17, but always by 17, there would be a moment where the boys would burn their toys, and the girls would burn their dolls by saying goodbye to their childhood, and they would then embrace adulthood uh, and they would then change their toga. Their toga had a purple stripe on the bottom, and then they would take on the white toga of an adult, and they would be considered an adult. But in our culture, we don't have a specific time when a boy becomes a man and a girl becomes a woman. And you need to understand that there was a specific time in these other cultures so you can begin to understand exactly what's going on in verses 1 through 7 of Galatians chapter 4 because what Paul is doing is he's basically telling you that after studying this particular letter, you're going to see that Paul pictures a minor child in this passage who though he's an error... Uh, an inheritor of a great estate, he was still under the authority of guardians and of managers until his father then bestowed on him the full rights, privileges, and authority of a mature man, which is typically in line with their cultural customs. So depending on what 
you know, background they were, they would then move into that transition and become an adult. That's what's going on in this particular passage. So in our culture, we're like, well, wait, we don't know when somebody becomes an adult. They did. And so what he's going to try to tell you, are you ready, is that living by the law is like living like a child under the authority of guardians and managers. So every day you get up, they tell you when to get up, they tell you how to dress, they tell you how to go to school, they walk you to school, they walk you back home, they tell you when to go to bed. Everything is regimented. It's very, you know, very, very black and white. Now, listen, parents, you know that it's very important for younger children to have black and white rules. Are you with me on this? They need to be, you don't want to go to McDonald's with a three-year-old and go, what do you want, honey? Okay, you don't want to do that. That's a big mistake. You want to say, eat your burger, and if you don't, your brother's going to eat it, okay? So, you want to lay out kind of black and white rules for them. They need that, when to get up, when to go to bed, etc. They need that, but as you get older, you begin to understand relationship, you begin to understand the reason for those rules, you begin to understand what it means to be mature, be responsible, and also to engage, and as your children get over, you begin to become friends with them, even though you're still the parent, you, you, you have this relationship with them that is now an adult relationship. Anybody with me so far? That's behind this text, but you need to remember that there's a point in time when you're a child... And then in the first century, you become an adult. And Paul's going to say, look, I don't want you guys to be children anymore. Under the law, I want you to be adults who have a relationship with Jesus Christ so intimate that you're not only an inheritor of all the blessings that the Father wants to give you, but you're very intimate with Him. So intimate, you call Him Daddy, Abba. Are you tracking with me? So that's what's behind this passage that you need to understand. I want you to read it aloud with me now with that in your mind so you begin to understand what Paul is actually saying. So take your outline and follow along with me and let's read it out loud. Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Ready, everyone together? Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he's the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the Father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, so that they might receive adoption as sons." Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Now, you understand, if you've been with us in our study through the book of Galatians, and if you're new with us, no embarrassment here. We're just trying to interpret God's Word as it's written in the context. We believe that the Bible has one meaning. Every verse has one interpretation that's accurate. We're not trying to make the Bible say what we want. We're trying to draw out what God meant by what God said in the original audience to the original people who wrote it. Are you with me on this? So we're trying to let you hear God's word as God meant to communicate it as best we can. And so Paul is basically explaining and expanding this analogy of a child who's coming of age by contrasting your life before you became a Christian. You're kind of like a child. Stay with me. Now remember, as a child, you're told what to do. It's very black and white, right? Come on, nod your head just a little bit. You're told what to do, black and white. But then as you get older, there's more of a relationship that's, that's developed, correct? Well, they had a definitive time. And that definitive time, then you're no longer a child, black and white, don't told what to do. Now you're in a relationship of intimacy and you're an inheritor. Well, listen, when you come to Christ, that's what happens, you're under the law, it's all black and white, you got to do exactly what the rules tell you, and now you're in a relationship, and you do those rules now not out of because you have to, but because you want to out of relationship with this incredible being that is your Savior and God who did everything for you. Are you tracking with me? That's what's happening here. And so both the Jewish and the Gentile readers would easily understand the imagery here, even though in our culture it's not really clear when you become an adult. So, if you read the paper, sometimes you might get an idea what's happening here. So let me give you an illustration that happened about 10 years ago or so. It was the Duke and Duchess of Northumberland, and they're in, of course, England, and they went to court, and they're going to block 
their son from inheriting his fortune uh, when he turned 18. They don't want him to inherit at 18. Uh, their son was the young Earl Percy, uh, Percy, and he's only 14 years old at the time when they took him to court, and his parents had his best interests in mind because at 18, what was going to happen was the Earl, Percy, was going to inherit, are you ready for this, kids? An entire castle. It's all going to be his. He's going to own it all. He immediately gets one million pounds. That's even more than the dollar. And the best part, every year after that, he gets a half a million pounds for doing nothing. That's his inheritance. And because the parents had seen so many other of the English nobility basically waste their fortune on drugs and riotous living, they're going, you know what, we kind of want to extend this so he doesn't inherit at 18, they wanted him to inherit at 25 and they won the court case, but it was a big deal in England. Are you tracking with me? There's a little bit of what's going on here in the passage. He's saying, I want you to be an adult and I want you to have that relationship and I want there to be a level of maturity. So what you see here is Paul has been in Galatians drawing a contrast between the old covenant in the Old Testament and the new. The era of Moses and now the time of Christ. Uh, the living under the law, but, but actually what you want is living under by grace through faith. So that's what he's desiring. So Paul's going to contrast this infant child, black and white, under the law, you know, being told what to do, and then he becomes a man at that moment under grace. And Paul's going to use your understanding of this child, not yet an adult. He's under tutors, chapter 3. He's under guardians and managers, chapter 4. And he's living like a slave. Now, now understand what he's saying, living like a slave. Do children typically, now our culture is kind of weird, but do children typically get to do whatever they want, yes or no? No, they do what mom and dad say, correct? And they're, in a sense, like a slave. That's what he's saying. They have to do what mom and dad say. But then they become adult, they become independent, and they do, you know, exactly the kind of self-determination of where their heart's at. So what he's saying is that these children, in the context and the analogy here, are those who are trying to be saved by the law. And he's saying, listen, you Galatians, if you go back to the law, what you're saying is, I want to go back to childhood and be a slave again and do what everybody tells me to do. I'm going to do all the rules, etc." And he's saying, look, you've got this incredible new relationship with Christ. Why would you go back to that? That's what he's trying to tell you. Okay? So in contrast, now he's going to tell you what it means to be a son, an inheritor, an adult, and a, a child of God who now knows intimacy with the God of the universe and inheritance from the God of the universe. So there's three major points that come right out of the text, and we're going to look at all three of them. So stay with me, okay? Number one, don't remain an enslaved child. Don't remain an enslaved adult. That's what he's going to say in the first three verses here. Take a look at them as I read them aloud. He says, now I say, as long as the heir is a child... He does not differ at all from a slave, although he's the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children under the law, we were in bondage under the elemental things of the world. Now that phrase, as long as the heir is a child, he's describing a minor who is spiritually and intellectually immature, not ready for the privileges and responsibilities of adulthood. Throughout his childhood, though, if you're the eldest son in this particular context, you knew that someday you would inherit your father's estate. You would know that. And look at verse 1, the translation, although he's the owner of everything, that's not really a good translation. The right translation would be, he's Lord of all. All right? He owns everything. He's the Lord of all. He's the master of all, meaning he has his father's land, he has his father's estate, and that all belongs to him by title, are you ready? But not actual possession. He has it by title. So it was all awaiting, look at verse 2, until the date set by the father, and the father would typically go according to custom, whether he's a Jew or Greek or a Roman, and he would follow through with that custom. In the meantime, this young heir had as much liberty as a common slave. Again, like a child, He's told when to go to bed, 
when to get up, what to wear, where to go to school, uh, how to study, how to stay on task, how to behave, etc. So he's, he's basically saying he's kind of like a slave, all right? And you're saying, Galatians, you want to go back to that? That's what he's talking about here. So he also had a trustee or a steward, verse 2, uh, who managed his property, especially his father, if he was deceased, they would have this steward or manager. Now, you British and Batman fans already know, until he came of age, the child was called, are you ready? You saw it. Young Master. Right? Oh, Young Master. Now, why? Master, because he owned everything but didn't have possession of it. Young, because they wanted to keep him in his place until he was then an adult. So, Young Master. Though, verse 1, he's the owner of everything, the Lord of all, so to speak, under this system, the young master sometimes felt like more like a slave than a son because he had, was told everything, and he was under bondage, but that bondage was necessary in order to bring him to a point where he would repent and turn to Christ. Are you tracking with me? So what he's saying is that this life of a child is like trying to live under the law to get saved. The life of the child is trying to live under the law to get saved. And he's saying, no, you can have the life of an adult, a son, an inheritor, and the freedoms that come with that if you would just turn to Christ and live by grace through faith. Tracking with me? That's what's underneath this whole passage. So, he basically is waiting to receive his inheritance until the date established by the Father. Verse 2, look at it says, it says, until the date set by the Father. Again, the point of this analogy is this. The law plays a similar role in the story of salvation. So Paul is saying, look, you know, you were under this law like a child is under all these guardians and managers, but if you would then turn to Christ by grace through faith, then you would have intimacy with the Father, and you'd have inheritance with the Father, just like it would if you were transitioning and becoming an adult, so that's what he's pointing them to. And then you say, Galatians, you don't want to go back to that. Don't go back to childhood. That's what's happening underneath this particular text. And the false teachers are telling the Galatian baby Christians in these baby churches, hey, grow up and to inherit the blessings of God. You got to keep the law. You got to be circumcised. You got to keep the Jewish festivals. But verse 3 in the ESV says it a little clearer. Look what it says. In the same way, we also, when we were children were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Pre-Christ, we were in NASB bondage. And before you came to saving faith in Christ, before you came of age, you were enslaved to the elemental things of the world. Now you say, what in the world, Chris, is the elemental things of the world? I'm so glad you asked. It's a really a difficult word to define and to interpret until you look at the context and then you look at how it's used elsewhere in the New Testament. So what you have, this word actually means foundational things. Um, those of you who are, you know, in English, you would understand you got to learn the alphabet. Everybody with me? Just nod every once in a while, it helps me. you got to learn the alphabet. Then you put those alphabetical words together and you, you get words. And then you put those words together and you get sentences. And then you put those sentences together, you get paragraphs. And you begin to grow in your understanding, correct? Well, that's elemental. He's going, these are the words. These are actually letters, not words. And he's saying, that's, that's what you are when you're under the law. You're under the elemental things. It's just the alphabet. You haven't really learned how to have a relationship and a conversation here, composition-wise, to actually dialogue with anybody. So what you need to do is, number two in your outline, pursue Christ to be made into a son. you got to, in a sense, move away from the elemental things and, and become... Someone who's now an adult. Uh, don't remain enslaved. Uh, master the alphabet, then move on to composition. God raised his people on the law to prepare them for the gospel. They're under the law, Israel, and he wants them to be in Christ. He wants them to be saved by grace through faith, not trying to work it out on their own. You know, do this, do that, do this, do that, and somehow I'm going to be right with God. He's saying, no. You need to have this relationship, this intimacy. So what brought God's people from slavery to sonship was the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what did it. That's the moment that when you recognize that, you believe that, you're born again, you now move to adulthood in the, this particular text. So 
were under the law until coming to Christ. And Paul describes it in these poetic terms. And now you're going to see this verse in its context. Okay, are you ready? Verse 4. Take a look at verse 4 and 5. It says, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem all those who are under the law, so that they might receive the adoption as sons. Now look at this verse, phrase by phrase. And you're going to see some rich truth there, so stay with me in your outline. Look at this now. Paul speaks of, one, the timing of Christ's coming. The timing. He says in verse 4, but when the, what kind of time? The fullness of time. Under ancient law, the father had the right to determine that now the boy was going to inherit. When the time was right, remember, he's, oh, should it be 18? Should it be 25? He determines this according to custom, but he's going to, he makes that decision. Well, God made the decision. When you, Israel, and you, who turned to Christ, would then turn to Christ so that you might become adults or sons, fully inheriting. Are you tracking with me? He determined the time of that. So, God the Father determined the time when God the Son would come to give all His children their inheritance. And in God's timetable, when the exact religious, economic, cultural uh, military, political conditions, even Roman roads were required by God's perfect plan. When all that was in place, are you ready? Jesus came into the world. We celebrated it last week. He came into the world. So number two, the origin of Christ's coming. It celebrates Christ's eternal deity. Paul says in verse four, this is an incredible phrase, look at it. God sent forth his what son and God what did God do what did he do what's the word sent sent now that should shock you because the fact that God the son was sent demonstrate that Jesus existed before he was born are you tracking with me he didn't just come out of a womb he was sent to be born are you getting that come on make that you should smile okay because in the same way what's happening here is that God is sending from heaven, declares that Jesus is divine. He's God. The second person of the Trinity who lived with the Father in glory in eternity past, He came from heaven, God sent forth His Son. As the earthly Father set the time for His Son to inherit, now our heavenly Father sets the time when then He sent His Son at the precise moment to bring all those who believe out from under the bondage of the law to make them sons and to make them inheritors. He brought them into intimacy. You know, what did it take? Let's not leave this for a second. What did it take for this to occur? Don't ever forget the suffering and the horrible death of Jesus Christ and His resurrection from the dead. That's what it took in order to bring you and me into his kingdom. Never forget that. But how did it happen? <laughs> this is the part where maybe there's a little theological controversy. But take a look at John 6:44 because he says no one can come to me Jesus unless the Father who what? sent me. So he sent me and then he says draws him. That word draws is actually taking someone against their will and dragging them into court. That's what the word means. That's what it took. We're, we're not seeking God. It's God who seeks us. And out of His love draws us to Himself. And He paid the price to even make that occur. And then eternal God comes to earth in the person of Jesus Christ and is physically, good verse 4, born of a woman. Number three, the manner of Christ's calling and His coming is born of a woman. Now, whereas the word sent means that Christ is eternal God, the word born shows us that He has a full and complete humanity. Tracking with me? Jesus, eternal God, had an ordinary human birth. To say that a human mother gave birth to Him is to say that God the Son became a human being. This is the doctrine of the incarnation that we celebrated last week. 
Uh, God is the God-man. Jesus is God in a bod. And there's no better way to emphasize that he is fully man by saying that he's born of a woman. So this is eternal God who is now born of a woman, fully man. You have two natures here. Christ is one person with two natures. That's the hypostatic union. Two people, two persons in one person, two natures in one person, meaning with no confusion, he is Jesus Christ, God in a bod, fully God. His sacrifice had to atone for sin to be acceptable to God. He had to be fully God. But he's also had to be fully man so he can embrace the penalty for sin that you deserve, that I deserved, and to truly be your substitute, which Christ did. So he had to be fully God to be acceptable to God, that sacrifice, and he had to be fully man for to be our substitute and take your place, which he did. So verse 4 then adds, born under the law. That's number four, the condition of Christ's coming. The condition of his coming, which is perfect obedience. Perfect obedience. Like all men, Christ was bound to obey God's law, but unlike anybody else, he perfectly obeyed that law. Has anyone in this room perfectly obeyed God's law? Yes or no? No. But Jesus did. Circumcised the eighth day, kept all the feasts. You know that there are 613 commandments in the Old Testament. He kept every one of them. He celebrated all the feasts and Passover. He did everything the law required, so much so. Take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, and the strength of this incredible argument. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be, what? Sin, who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. This is very important. Christ's sinlessness made him the final, forever, unblemished sacrifice. No more lambs were needed. Christ was that final sacrifice that fulfilled all righteousness, perfectly obeying God in everything. And that perfect righteousness is imputed to all those who believe in Christ. Do you earn it? No. You embrace it. You give your life to it. And all those who believe in Him are the only ones who are able to stand in His presence. Now, you know this, but let me say it one more time. To live with God now and to live in His presence forever in heaven. Are you ready? Here's the condition. Please stay with me. You and I have to be perfect. God is perfect. You cannot stand in His presence unless you are perfect. Are you tracking with me? That's the truth of Scripture. And therefore, we're in big trouble. Would you agree? Thank you for that. So what did God do? When you respond to him in repentance and faith and your sin falls on Jesus Christ and is punished there, then he can take his perfect righteousness and cover you, impute his righteousness to you, put you in the right robe of righteousness so now you can live in his presence and when you get to that final wedding feast in heaven, you will be dressed properly in the perfect robe of righteousness, Christ's righteousness, not because of what you did, but because of what? What Christ did. Are you tracking with me? That's absolutely necessary, and not one single person on planet earth is going to be able to stand in God's presence unless they are robed in the righteousness of Christ. No one, no faith anywhere. You must be perfect and you can't do it, and I am way far from it, and it's only because of his covering righteousness that I can stand in his presence. So verse 5 actually gives you two purposes for this, and that is one purpose of Christ's coming, number 5, is verse 5, so that you might redeem those who are under the law. Guilty sinners who are under the law and the law's demands, the curses of the law, which is now death, you need a Savior. I need a Savior. No one's perfect. And therefore, Christ's death was more than a rescue. It's a redemption. He bought us. He purchased us. He released us. We were, every single person in this room, a slave to sin. A slave. You couldn't help but sin. Your nature was bent towards sin. And yet, God loved you enough that He purchased you out of slavery by the payment of a price. Just like it happened in the first century, you could free a slave by the purchasing of a price. And this is precisely what Christ did for you. He paid the price. You and I were enslaved to sin. We were guilty. 
We, many of you in the room, had false religion before you came to Christ. All of us had idols, that things that we loved more than God himself, and the elemental religious things of this world. Jesus paid the price for your freedom when he died on the cross. He paid the price. God paid the ultimate price when he sent his son. He sent Christ to die so you could be free and, are you ready? Hang on. So you could also be family, which is the second purpose that you have in verse 5. Number 6 in your outline, another purpose of Christ's coming is the second half of verse 5, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Now, everybody knows what adoption is, right? It's the act of bringing someone who is an offspring of another family and bringing you into your own family. And since unregenerate people, biblically and practically, by nature, are children of the devil... The only way that you and I can become God's child is through spiritual adoption. We desperately need that. And so Christ's coming had an adopting purpose. He sent His Son to make us all His sons and His daughters. And it would be enough for me, personally, if God would just rescue me from the consequences of sin. That'd be enough. Wouldn't it be for you? I'm thinking, man, I've been rescued. I'm good for eternity. That's great. God said, no, no, no. That's not good enough for me. Because when I love you, I don't just free you from the penalty of sin. I make you, ready, family. I bring you into my family. It is so awesome. Look what it does to us internally. Look at Romans 8.15 there in your outlines. Look at it. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of what? adoption as sons by whom we cry out Abba Father leading to number three in your outline enjoy the intimacy and inheritance of family now just let me help you not in my notes here just want to make sure you got this all right you were a kid you were told what to do it's all black and white every day you got to get up you're under the law you're doing all this thing and he's saying look I want you to move into adulthood I want you to become a son, a child of the king. I want you to become an inheritor. And I want your relationship with me to be not one that's distant like the law. I want it to be intimate like we're family. Are you tracking? That's what he's talking about here. So what you've got is God confirming his relationship with you in verse 6. And God blessing your relationship with him now and forever in verse 7. So let's look at both of them. Verse 6, because you are sons and daughters, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And then, now the blessing, therefore you are no longer a slave, but you are what? Son of the King. And if a son, then an heir through God, an inheritor. So God is confirming, when you respond in saving faith, belief, as his adopted sons through the gift of the Spirit, and he calls the Holy Spirit here the, the Spirit of his Son, you not only have the knowledge of sonship through the Word of God in your mind, but you also have the Spirit of God indwelling you, in a sense affirming the sonship that you enjoy with your Abba Father internally. And not only you know it, but you in a sense can feel it that you have this relationship. Now, a human father cannot give his own nature to his adopted child. But God the Father can and does by sending his Holy Spirit to dwell in the hearts of believers. Understand, it's the Holy Spirit work to confirm believers in their adoption. Assurance of salvation is kind of a view here, and this is a work of God. It comes as Christians are dependently obedient. It comes to those who want God's will. Assurance comes to those who seek to follow Christ in all things, not perfectly, but progressively, but it's really of God. And as true children, you cry out to Him as Abba. Abba is the Aramic term uh, that basically means Papa or Daddy. It's a term of intimacy. It's, it's a term of relationship. It's a term of tenderness and dependence. A term that tells, look, you're free. Listen, come on, Christian, stay with me. Is there anything you can do if you're a Christian to not be his child? Anything? You're stuck. I'm sorry. But if you're truly a child of God, you are 
his child forever? Is there anything that you could do that could cause him to not love you anymore? Yes? No? No. You're his chosen child. So understand, some of you are a little bit messed up. Okay, and some of you are going, yeah, I own that. That's me. I like that. Some of you are a little messed up by your dads. Because when you think about Abba, you think about Daddy, Papa, it's a hard concept for you. Because your dad didn't measure up and wasn't that kind of example. Maybe you had a dad who was never there. You know that Abba is omnipresent? And not only omnipresent, that means present everywhere. He's ubiquitous. You know what ubiquitous means? He means he's fully present there. There's never a time that you are distant from Abba, ever. He may feel distant to you. He is never distant to you. He's at work. Do you know that you may have had a dad that didn't provide? You know that Abba blesses you with every spiritual blessing, Ephesians 1, and everything you need in life, 2 Peter 1. Uh, Maybe you had a dad that was always angry. You know that Abba poured out all his anger against you. All your sin fell on Christ. All of it. So now you're his child. And he's a God of peace who loves his children. Maybe you had a dad who was super sinful. Abba is absolutely holy and righteous and never sinful. Maybe you had a dad that was manipulative. Abba is always true. Always keeps his word. Always keeps his promises. Maybe you had a dad that was uncaring. Abba knows the number of hairs on your head and his thoughts towards you are more than the sand of the seashore. Is that a lot? It's a lot. And maybe you had a dad that was unable, but your Abba can do anything and everything consistent with his character. Now, that's, that's quite a difference, right? And some of you from tough backgrounds need to adjust your thinking. This is Abba. A human father cannot give his own nature to an adopted child, but God the Father does. And so therefore, you have this incredible relationship that God the Father confirms his relationship with you that come only by faith, not by law, not by works, not by religion. And he assures you of your salvation in many ways. But one of the ways is that now he is your Abba. And when you come into his presence, it's the intimacy of a father-child, so much so that it's Abba, Daddy. For the Galatians, since they had the spirit of the son, in verse 6, they already had the full rights of sons. So verse 7, take a look at verse 7 now. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Christ is the only one who can transition you from infant under the bondage of the law, under the bondage of mentors and tutors and managers, and and make you a true son. He can deliver all of you from that. Don't want to go back to that, the the black and the white, the rules, etc. He wants you to go, look, I want you to become a child of God and you understand the reasons for those rules and then you begin to function by them because of a relationship and because of intimacy, not because of you're trying to earn your salvation. Not because you're enslaved. And when God adopts you as his child, he promises you an inheritance with Christ. In fact, the ultimate outcome of your relationship with Christ through Christ is an inheritance with the Father's estate. So in the spiritual realm, a person who believes in Jesus Christ is no longer under the law, no longer a slave, no longer an infant or a child who cannot inherit. Now in Christ, you and I are sons. And and as adopted sons, if a son, then you're going to be an heir, an inheritor through God. Now some of you are not excited today. This is wrong. Okay, now, you understand this. When I talk about inheritance, and I talk about the will being unveiled, or, you know, your, your parents have passed away, and some of you aren't excited at all. You know why? Because mom and dad had nothing, and mom and dad aren't going to give you anything, okay? I'm just throwing that out. That's not a sad thing. It's just common, okay? But if your dad had millions, and he loved you, and he had possessions out of the wazoo, and, and when he died, and you know there's an inheritance, you get kind of excited. Are you with me on this? Would you change in your perception of inheritance? Come on, if it was all positive, not fighting in the courts and stuff, but it's really a positive. Come on, please nod your head. You would be excited about it. What's daddy going to give me, correct? Are you with me? Consider this. What if your dad 
owned everything that exists. How excited should you be? That's you. You are not an, only an heir of God, but you are, Romans 8, a co-heir with Jesus Christ. So everything that God gives His Son in the triune God, He's giving to you. You should be doing right now, just forget the sermon, a happy dance right now. I mean, it's unbelievable what God, I mean, to me, honestly, forgiveness of my sins and washing me clean, man, I, I am happy. I, I, I just wanted to be delivered. Anybody with me on this? And God said, eh, eh. That's what he said. Eh, eh. It's there in the text, in the white spaces. Eh, eh. I'm making you family. So much so, I'm going to make you intimate with me like it's a, a, I'm your daddy. And, and I'm going to have that kind of relationship with you that's so close. And then I'm going to lavish you with an inheritance that can never fade and never be taken away. Are you with me on this? You shouldn't be excited about earthly inheritance. You should be going, wait a minute. I'm going to be inheriting from the one who gives eternal, never fading away, an internal transformation that will never change and will be free of all of this burden and woe and sin forever. Anybody looking forward to that? That's what's at stake here. And he says, how dare you, Galatians, want to go back to get up, do this, da, 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 black and white, not all the rules, when you've got this incredible inheritance, this incredible relationship. How could you want to go back? That's one through seven. Take it home with me, all right? Are you approaching your salvation as a relationship? Are you approaching your, relationship as, uh, your, your salvation as a relationship? You're so close, your papa, your daddy. But just like your relationship with your natural parents was your heart-to-heart -heart relationship with the Lord requires time and effort and to season and deepen. Are you tracking with me? Listen, if you want to be intimate with God, is it going to take a little bit of work on your part, yes or no? Sure. You're going to want to pursue it. Not because you have to, but because you want to. Listen, when you're trying to win that girl or win that guy to be your husband or wife, right? You worked at it. Why? Out of love. Out of love. Well, in the same way, if you're going to be close to the God who loves you, there's going to be some effort on your part, some actions. And uh, Chuck Swindoll took basically what Christ did as the God-man to maintain his intimacy with his heavenly Father. And he said, listen, if that's how he maintained his intimacy with the Father, then maybe we could learn from Christ in our intimacy with the Father. Tracking with me? So this is what he came up with. And I boiled it down and altered it, etc. But here we go. Simplicity. Uncluttering your life and mind from the things that distract you from God. This is a big one for the people in this room. If you're going to be intimate with the Father, you've got to unclutter your life. You've got to make time for it. In fact, that's the next one, silence and solitude. You've got to slow your pace and make space in your schedule for the Lord. This is probably my biggest deal because I kind of cram my life with not a lot of margins. Anybody else like that? I just go, 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 you know, and I need time to maintain my relationship. Are you tracking with me? Maybe that's you too. Uh, you could add surrender, releasing your grip on things that take your attention off your Abba, right? You're so consumed with these things, maybe you need to just give them up so you could actually focus on the Lord. Prayer, calling out to your Father with your praise and thanksgiving petitions. You could add humility, bowing your entire life before the will of God, saying, I want to do what you want me to do, follow the word of God. You could add self-control, holding back your own priorities in favor of God's priorities, and, and you could even see sacrifice, giving up those things that God expects you to surrender. Now listen, to make this happen, you've got to stop doing the unnecessary, and you've got to start doing the necessary. And that's tough for a lot of Christians in our culture. Listen, these activities will not cause you to become a Christian or a child of God. They're, they're not going to earn you God's favor, but you need to steer clear of any legalistic attitude that you might have towards these actions. But listen, if you're going to cultivate a meaningful intimacy with your Heavenly Father, you must pursue the habits that Christ pursued. 
Are you tracking with me? Don't be legalistic, but understand that's the path to intimacy. Uh, Letter B, are you allowing the Spirit to woo you towards greater intimacy? Now, just for a second, would you, I know this is hard, stay with me, picture yourself as a child who has a great daddy, okay? Are you with me on this? A child who has a great daddy. And look at this verse, verse 6. God has sent forth, verse 6, take a look at it again, the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Holy Spirit into us, crying, what? Abba, Father. Do you know, you know, when kids want to respond to their parents, <laughs> they don't write out a speech. Are you tracking with me? They don't go, okay, what am I going to say to Dad? Da, da, da. They just go, Dad! And they, tell, they talk to you. Are you tracking with me? Please nod just a little bit. Oh, thank you. Understand that there's no prepared speeches here. When you're experiencing the work of the Spirit, there's spontaneity, there's reality. Listen, God doesn't want you going, Oh God, my Father, talk to your daddy. Talk to him. Oh, Lord, I can't stand my husband today. Oh, yeah, you know, Lord, uh, uh, she, she's, I don't, what, she needs coffee. Something's going on here. Uh, what's going, whatever, you just talk to him about whatever's happening. That guy at work is driving me nuts. Just talk to him. Tell him what's going on. Don't prepare a speech. Talk to him. Are you getting it? Abba, Father. God is not insulted by you coming into his presence as his daddy, your daddy. The Greek word crying has this sense of real presence. And as a child, you know, when you have a problem as a child or you have a question as a child, what do you do? You ask. Uh, our kids used to ask so many questions. We'd say, can we have like two minutes without a question? Okay. But understand, our father's not that way. He's way more patient. And he loves your questions. And when there's a problem, he loves you to come into his presence. That's why he brought that problem into your life, by the way, to, to have you come into his presence. He's your Abba Father. Abba is baby talk for Papa and Daddy, but it, it really signifies a confidence of love and assurance of welcome. Listen, as a young child, you assume your parent loves you if you have a healthy family and, and, and is there for you and never doubts the security of a daddy's strong arms. Listen, as a Christian, you have an overwhelming boldness and certainty that God loves you endlessly. There's nothing that can change His love for you. Amen? Height, depth, breadth, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Are you tracking with me? Therefore, come into His presence. Allow the Spirit to woo you into intimacy. But you got to start talking to Him as an Abba. Talk to Him. Let her see. Have you moved from slave to son? Slave to son. This is really fast. Uh, I got five points for there. I want to highlight all five of them. What I'm trying to contrast here is the enslaved child with the black and white do's and don'ts compared to the adopted son who has this intimate relationship now with Abba Father. Which one are you? Which one are you? Are you still trying to earn your salvation? Are you the, the slave who really hasn't come to Christ? You got a lot of religiosity. Well, here's the distinctions between the two. Look at your outline. The son has the same nature as the father, while the slave does not. Listen, the law can never give you and give a person God's nature within, but God's grace does. So are you one who has the Spirit of God living in you and through you, or are you one that going, I, I, I'm just trying to do this in my own strength? Number two, the son has a father, while the slave only has a master. The son has a father, while the slave only has a master. Listen, no slave ever says to his master, Father. Never calls him daddy. Never. So when the sinner trusts Christ, he receives the Spirit of God and he's given this affirmation that God is his Abba. Number three, the son obeys out of love, the slave obeys out of fear. Listen, the fruit of the Spirit is love. The Judaizers are saying, listen, go back to the law. That will make you close to God. Go back to the law. Keep all the festivals. Do all that. That's going to produce obedience. It never produces obedience. The law never produces obedience. Guess what produces obedience? Are you ready? Love. Love. What did Jesus say? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It's love. 
If you're trying to grind this out, it's like, no, I, I want to do what he wants me to do. Number four, the son is rich, the slave is poor. You're a son and an heir, and you can draw right now on your inheritance. Listen, I did a little study, got out my little computer concordance, and looked up riches. Do you know how wealthy you really are? I, some of you are going to walk away, home oh, still poor. No, you're rich. If you're a Christian, and look what you have right now. You don't have to wait for inheritance. That inheritance is yours now. God has made available to you the riches of His grace, Ephesians 1. The riches of His glory, Philippians 4. The riches of His goodness, all His goodness, Romans 2. The riches of His wisdom, Romans 11. And all the riches of God are found in Christ, Colossians 1. There's riches. And number five, the son has a future while the slave does not. Now, there were some masters who did provide for their old slaves, but your heavenly father always provides for his sons and gives you. So which one are you? Please answer this question. Which one are you? Are you enjoying the truths of the son who's been adopted, who's now in Christ, an inheritor, an intimate? Or are you more like the slave? Because if this morning, you're obviously more like the slave in every way, beg Christ to save you. Ask him to adopt you. Ask him to transform you and make you into a Christian. Call out to him. And letter D, are you longing for your final redemption? Listen, redemption occurred in two things. It was a private ceremony, and then there was a public proclamation. Every one of you have been given the private ceremony. You've been purchased by Christ and dwelt by the Spirit of God. Now we're waiting for the second stage of redemption, and that is the public declaration of the return of Christ. When Christ, in 1 John 3, we shall be like him. We are sons and heirs, and the best part of our inheritance is yet to come, even though we get all these riches. By giving ourselves to Jesus Christ, by grace through faith. Ready, one more time. God gives you everything the Son possesses. Everything. Let's pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, we pray you would take your word and change our lives and that you would cause us to become the men and women you want us to be who are truly intimate, truly inheritors, truly walking with you and in, in the, the relationship that you've given us. In 2023, let that relationship grow deep. And if there are any who don't know you, uh, Father, that are more like the slaves, still trying to crack it out with, you know, the, the black, the white, the, the truths, the, the laws, somehow trying to earn their way. Father, would you crack through their hard heart and show them what it's like to be born again. We'll give you all the glory for what you'll do. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. The following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net.